You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Crippled Content Creations and Podcast Jukebox present Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability with your host, Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners. Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store, for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie, if you want, for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag, and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that that other item. So you get one free item for penis havers, one free item for vulva havers, one free item for couples, and then you also get six free movies from the AdamEve.com website, You can get your favorite porn or an educational film. I love free movies. They're so awesome. This is such a great deal. And then, on top of that, you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So, to redeem this great offer, what you're going to do is you're going to go to AdamEve.com. You're going to go to checkout and you're going to type in DarkPod. That's D-A-R-K. P.O.D. at checkout, and you're going to get one item, almost anything in the store, at 50% off. And then, you're going to get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free, as part of your offer. This is such a great deal, and this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners. And I hope you run over to AdamEve.com and take advantage of it right now. Content Warning. The Language Content and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. My name is, of course, Andrew Gerza. I am your disabled Dick Smith, your disabled dreamboat. And I am here to get comfy, cozy, and crippled with you. Let's get this show started.
So uh, before we get too started on the show, I want to say that I got a one-star review the other day, and that was kind of jarring and felt sort of weird, and I want to talk about it. I got a one-star review from somebody in Germany who told me that I was using ableist language on the show, and I wanted to just address it because I want to make sure that I'm not overstepping, and I want to I want to I want to make sure that I'm growing and saying all the right things. So. The language I use, like triple and gimp and all those things that I use when I have these discussions, is trying to do so in a way that is reclaiming this language. I would never use this language in a way that is derogatory towards another disabled person. I would never do that. And so I hope that when you go to review the show on iTunes or things like that, you consider that all the language I'm using is trying to bring disability out of the shadows and into the mainstream through these discussions and if you ever listen and are not happy with my language feel free to tell me send me an email let me know and I'll, I do my best to to look at my language and figure out why I'm saying what I'm saying I never want to offend anybody but I do want to use language around disability that is real and honest and my experience of disability is to be very upfront about it and using the words like cripple and gimp and talking about all that stuff may seem ableist on, on its face, but it do, I do so in a way to shed light on these things, which is the whole point of the show. So I hope that you review the show and give us five-star reviews, but if I do get one or two more one-star reviews, part of me is like, I guess I'm doing something super right if, you, if I caught a nerve. And I hope that um, the person that gave that review will reconsider once hearing this. Other stuff that I want to do on the show, send me your Minnesodes and I'll give you some prompts for Minnesodes that I want to hear about. I want to hear you send me in your Minnesodes about your experiences traveling as a disabled person. I want to hear your great traveling stories and your horrible traveling stories and I want to make those into a Minnesota. So send me your Minnesotes about your shitty traveling experiences to disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Tell me all your stories and I will read them back to you hilariously on the show. I want to also get to the people that have pledged to the Patreon, which I really appreciate. I know that putting down your hard-earned dollars isn't always easy and I really I, it means so much. So this week I want to thank our new Patreon supporter, who is Nikki Richards. And the only pun that I could think of when I got this was, Hey, Nikki, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. Uh, yeah, I'm a dork. I know. Sorry. So, Nikki Richards, thank you for your $1 a month pledge to keep this show going and to keep a bright light shining on this topic. It means the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. Also, there's a new Patreon tier that I've added to the stuff that I want to tell you all about. There's a Patreon tier, a $5 tier now, where you can pledge $5 a month or more, and you can help me build an episode. So, if there's something you want to hear that I haven't covered yet, or a topic you want me to re revisit, or anything like that, you can pledge $5 a month at this new tier, and you can build a show with me. We can do research together, we can have a Skype call about it, you can send me emails about the things you want me to research, and it will, it'll give us more great content for the show together, which I appreciate. And it'll mean that your 
views on disability will become part of the show, which I think is really cool. Um, so if you want to do that, $5 a month or more to keep this show going, it would mean the world. Because I also want to use, as you heard last week, I want to use some of this money to to do tra- audio transcriptions of the show so that deaf or hard of hearing people can have access to the program. So uh, if you can, pledge your dollars at patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark. You'll get the show one day early on Wednesdays, and you will get a weird shout-out from me, and if you pledge $5 a month or more, you can build a show with me. So there's some new perks coming your way. But now, on to the show. On the show today, I sit down with somebody pretty awesome. A couple of weeks ago, you heard me sit down with my sister, Heather Morrison, who is the co-founder of our new brand, Deliciously Disabled, trying to create the first line of sex toys for people with disabilities. And as she mentioned on the show, we are working with Dr. Judith Glover out of RMIT in Melbourne, Australia. And so, my guest today is... Dr. Judith Glover out of RMIT from Melbourne, Australia, and we talk about kind of how she came to work in the sex and wellness area and how sex and design came to be for her. We talk about her experiences with disability before this project that she's working on with us. Um, we talk about the need for innovation in sex tech around disability, and a whole bunch more things. This was a really fun, really important interview. She has a lot to say about sexuality and disability and sexuality generally that's really important, and I was really excited to sit with her. So excited that you don't hear me say much in this interview. I'm pretty quiet because she had a lot to say, and I wanted her to get the chance to say it. So I don't say much. I agree with her a lot because a lot of what she says is totally true, but we had a really fun conversation. We talk about um, the future of sex, tech, and disability and what she thinks that looks like, how to design toys for disabled people and what, what we're working on a little bit in our project, and a whole lot more, and I wanted to share this interview with Dr. Judith Glover with you right now. So. We're going to shine a big bright light on this this discussion, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed doing it. So, without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Judith Glover, right now on Disability After Dark. Dr. Judith Glover, hello. Hello, Andrew. I am so excited to have you on Disability After Dark. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Um... It's really nice to be talking to you because you are one of the people on our team helping us to design our sex toys for disabled people. Yes, that's right. I'm your, uh, what's called your chief investigator. That's so I'm the person that uh, pulls the team together um, and uh, manage, manages the project. And it's my, well, uh, disability is not specific specifically my area of expertise, but certainly uh, what I call design and, and um, sexual health innovation is the field that I'm trying to um, develop within um, industrial design. That I, And I love that so much, and I want you to kind of get into all that for us. But before we do any of that, um, can you introduce yourself a little bit more broadly, who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, 
So I'm a um, uh, an industrial. I'm in, in a, the industrial design program at RMIT in uh, Melbourne, Australia. Um, for your global audience who are listening to this, um, Melbourne is in uh, the state of Victoria in Australia. It's right down on the bottom of Australia, um, probably as far away from Canada as you can as you can get. Um, which is unfortunate because we don't get to see each other too often. Um, so RMIT is um, it's one of Australia's biggest universities and the design school there is one of the best design schools in the Southern Hemisphere and the industrial design program there, we would like to think we're in the top 10 industrial design programs in the world. Um, and with that, with that you, um, you have a bunch of teaching and then we get to do research and the research side is... Um, uh, is where the design and sexual health innovation comes in there for me. You probably want to know how I got to this point. Is that correct? I do want to know that. But okay. before right. I yes. get there, I would want to yeah. ask you: Do you are do you do you identify as a person with a disability or a chronic illness? No, okay. no, not at all. Um, uh, yeah, no, no. I mean, um, I, the reason I. Um, started in this, looking at this particular area, um, yeah. was that I went to, so the, the OT that is on this project, Elvira McSwain, um, uh, who you and your sister have met, um, she's very interested in this particular area and I think she'd read about, I think there was a newspaper article about me and one of my PhD students who, was, who were doing a completely different project. Um, on uh, prostate cancer, and oh no, we'd done a studio. We'd done we'd done a sex toy studio with the students, and it was in the paper. And Avira saw it, and um, we went and had a drink at the pub. And she said, "Look, I'm really interested." She'd she'd been a graphic designer, and then she'd gone into OT, um, occupational therapy. And she said, "Look, I'm really really passionate about helping people with disability, um, you know, have have sexual practice." Um, and I, we from the studio, we'd already flagged this as a particular area um, of need. Right. Um, and as you know, and the re the reason that you and Heather, your sister, um, came and spoke to us was because there really is a, a, a huge gap in the market. Like um, sex toys are not being specifically designed for people with disabilities. Um, yeah, totally. There's a whole bunch of other issues around it as well that aren't just the actual product themselves. Um, which we'll probably get into a bit later. So um, the reason I ended up um, even in this area, uh, because essentially the design and sexual health innovation area, I've kind of coined the term uh, myself to sort of um, develop something that didn't really exist. So industrial design has long been in the, the space of medical device, helping make medical devices, um, design medical devices, um, along with product design engineers and the medical profession. But the whole area of sexual health is kind of, um, even in this day and age, still very taboo, let alone um, the two probably tabooist areas around that um, being uh, disability and the other being um, uh, ageing or elderly. Yeah. Um, um, and so there is the really, in terms of the type of products that exist on the market and the sex space, um, and those products traditionally are developed by the adult industry. And the adult industry has a range of issues around it. Um, 
my PhD, so I've done the only um, PhD that I know of on the sex toy industry and how you develop, how you actually develop better sex toys, which was the initial question. The interesting thing about that is it's not a technological problem. You know, sex toys aren't that um, high tech. Um, <laughs> what it comes down to is it's a, it's a sort of a socio-sexual issue that you end up that um, these areas become taboo um, through a lot of um, historical reasons, something like about thousands of years. Um, and the, the area itself becomes marginalised and so you don't kind of get normal innovation in that particular area and it's very slow changing. So my, my PhD was about, well, if you bring in, you know, kind of normal product design standards, um, the way that industry normally innovates, um, what kind of sex toys could you create or sex toy companies could you create that? But for that particular project, it was about for contemporary Western females. So it was looking at a, at a female consumer market because females are the biggest consumers of sex toys and the stats are the higher income you have, the higher education you have, um, the higher position you have at work, the more likely you are to own a sex toy. Um, and so the, I mean, you know, and I've been looking at this area for 20 years, so, you know, there's this sort of kind of feeling that, oh, you know, sort of trailer park trash people use sex toys. It's not, you know, professional women. And it's actually the opposite, that they're quite expensive products for what they are. Um, and to get really good ones, you have to pay um, a decent amount of money these days. And so you're more likely to have a have a high income because it's about discretionary spending. Um, so um, I got into the area, and this is I finished my PhD nearly 10 years ago, So and that, and that took me 10 years. So I have been sort of looking at this area for a while now. And um, so then when I ended up in academia, because I did start a second company as I did the PhD, um, and then I kind of accidentally sort of fell into academia and ended up with this position. And then so the question was, how do you translate that into, how do you translate that PhD um, into a research, a kind of a research area, a research career? Um, and so I started looking at sexual health more broadly. So not just around sex toy users and people using it for recreational sex. Right. Um, right. But what happens across somebody's whole lifespan? Um, and, and then, of course, all the different areas under that. So whether you're a man, you're a woman, or if you're disabled, or all, all sorts of stuff. Um, I recently had a honor student do a, do a, a transgendering project. So um, across somebody's life, you know, your, your sexual practice changes so much. And some of that has to do with your emotional states. And then some of it has to do with your um, what happens to you physically and um, as your body changes um, as you age. And even, you know, people like yourself, you might be born with a disability, but you might actually acquire one um, through an accident or something else. Um, and then your circumstances dramatically change. And even yeah. with you, Edward, yeah. your, your story about how... Um, you know, you used to be able to masturbate, and then you lost that that kind of dexterity in your in your hand and your forearm, and you just couldn't do it anymore. And what a devastating um, experience that is. And when you go and talk to, it's just it, our sexual practice is such a untalked, really relatively untalked about thing. We tend to keep it 
to ourselves. Yeah, totally. Um, and yet it is so central to our well-being, our sense of who we are, our sense of identity and our well-being. Um, super, super important. And um, when you start kind of talking to people about it and other academics, they're like, oh, yeah, totally, you know, I get it. Um, and, uh, but, yeah, it's, it's because of the taboos um, and the same taboos, you know, this hangover from the Victorian era, and there's still laws that, that exist from the Victorian era, it's ridiculous, in certain jurisdictions. And um, the same kind of sociosexual taboos that are around the sex toy industry also exist within the health and the medical industry. Um, and so there's a real lack of... Um, uh, research or good research into problems around what I call the bits downstairs. Um, and even things like um, urologists not being able to talk to their male patients about what's going to happen when they go through a, a, a prostate cancer um, yeah. surgery, that sort of stuff. Even just me um, talking to my urologist a few years ago about, about a catheter was a whole discussion and a half and, you know, there was discomfort there. So... Yeah. Discomfort for them talking yeah. to you. Yeah. yeah. They were yeah. they were so uncomfortable and I was like, Oh, I am <laughs> good with a catheter, but I also want to have sex. Like what about that? And they were like, Oh yeah, that's okay, sure. And it was they were really, really uncomfortable and I remember just being like, Oh oh like so yeah, you're right. There is a huge there's a huge lack of discussion in these fields, particularly yeah. the medical field about disabled people or elderly people or just people getting off generally. People, just people of uh, medical professionals. Um, they don't know how to respond to these questions and they don't know what to say. There's no training. My uh, my cousin's wife, she heads up one of the um, – she's an obstetrician and heads up one of the major um, birthing hospitals in Sydney and she's extremely open-minded and she says, look, the – second question mothers want to know after is my baby okay is when can I have sex again and um, so <laughs> it's really important probably not not so closely you know probably there's a bit of a gap there between those two questions but um, um, she so she said um, there is no training so there's no training for obstetricians around this um, and, and obviously so in all of these medical professions that are highly skilled in what they do. There's just no training within within what they do. And some of these people would have been professionals for decades and decades. So if you go back to the, they might have been trained in the 70s or something like that, um, definitely not back there. So, um, you know, we're still struggling to give kids in high schools um, fairly realistic um, sex education and stuff. So um, there is... There is an issue. So, what? Um, so, why, why Vic's project? Why it's important to put it into a service design model um, is that you know we can't clone Vic and send millions of her her out across the world um, to look after all these couples. If you service design is a way that you can develop a model that then you can scale, so you can transfer and scale um, a bit like a blueprint. So, um, if her project elements of her project proved to be successful then we may be able to trial you know make a do a pilot trial say within the public health system um and then you know if that works then it's the model you can create um that you that you can scale across the public health system um and then it's about training other people to then um 
uh, deal with these these particular issues. But there's many ways that you can tackle this particular area. It's not why I call it innovation and not just design or product design. Is that some of the solutions are things that you can make and create. Yeah. And some of the solutions are, are, are service design or policy. I think there's a whole bunch of policy solutions that need to happen in the disability space too. Oh, well. oh yeah. I totally, I totally agree with you there. Um, I want to back up a little bit. I'm curious, and then that was thank you for that great overview. I'm curious though, what in your story, Dr. Glover, what in your story, um, in your life story, kind of made the area of sexual wellness and toy design? Why was that an interest for you? Um, it was a personal interest, and it was way before I became an industrial designer. So. A long time ago, and so I'm um, I'm a, a 50 now. Um, so I've been working for quite a few decades. And uh, back in my 20s, I used to be a, a welder and a, and a and a blacksmith. And I lived in another part of Australia. I lived up in the regional areas of Queensland. And um, anyway, I um, I met a woman. As all good stories start with meeting a woman. And I met I met a woman, and on our first. On our first, uh, so it's probably my my mid 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 twenties, and on our first date, on our first date, you know, we jump into bed, and um, and she pulls out um, what I now know to be um, a Dr. Johnson six inch dong, it's called, um, which is a classic. It's one of the first, one of the first. It's actually the first product that Doc Johnson ever uh, ever developed um, out of a garage somewhere in LA. Um, I think they've sold millions of them. And um, effectively, it's just a shaft. You know, you can stick your fingers inside it. It's got no handle. You know, and it and it's pink and it's veiny and it's a penis. And um, and I kind of looked at her because I was like, "We're both lesbians. <laughs> We're both women. Why are you pulling a pink penis out?" <laughs> <laughs> I think I think her I think her her answer at the time was probably just shut up and fuck me, and we'll talk about it later. And. <laughs> So afterwards, um, afterwards, uh, you know, I became curious because I was already a maker um, and, and I'd gone to art school and, you know, I was a creative person, I was a maker um, and I really enjoyed making objects and I was just like, what, you know, what the hell's going on here? And then we we went on a trip down to the Gold Coast um, and, I, and where her parents came from and, and I said, um, oh, well, let's go to a sex shop and let's buy better. Let's buy a better sex toy. Uh, naively, this was the late 90s, mid to late 90s. And um, and then so I went to a sex toy and there, there were no better sex. There were no better sex toys. Oh, no. Um, um, and, and I just went, what the hell is going on with this industry? Because in design, there's two areas in design that are problematic when it comes to getting quality products and services. And one is sex and one is death. And everything else has been done to design death. You know, you can get from crappy through to luxury and amazing all the way through. You can get whatever kind of brand you want and whatever price point you want to pay and whatever quality and sustainability and everything thrown in. So, but in that, and this is years ago now, uh, within the sex toy industry, um, it was completely dominated uh, by the adult industry. And at that stage, their business model hadn't fallen apart. So the internet um, was hadn't even, I mean, I was living up in regional Queensland in the bush. There was no internet. So when I ended up going back to university in 1998, 
uh, no, it was 99. Um, I remember going into a class and one of my classmates was on Google and I remember saying to him, what the hell's that? And he was like, oh, this is Google. And I'm like, well, what do you do with that? <laughs> and then, you know, he explained to me. And then I was like, oh, okay, that seems cool. And then by the time I left uni and, and even by 2006 when I – so we started using Google at uni and then um, we started – um, using the first CAD software programs. I think our first year we were hand drawing um, and then by second year we were starting to use the first CAD programs and then by fourth year they were starting to get fairly sophisticated. Um, and then, but even when I left and I managed to start Goldfrau, which was my uh, little sex toy brand, by 2006, and even then... Um, what was, that, was what was your what was your sex toy brand again? Gold Frau, Gold Frau, Gold. It means gold lady in German. My girlfriend at the time was German. Um, I like that. Uh, um, so, uh, but there was no social media. So you were start, which is which is kind of unthinkable now that you would be starting a a brand. Look, and in those days, um, things were called small businesses and not startups. Um, so within two years, uh, Facebook had come along. And social media really started and it just exploded. Um, so it was a completely different, very, very different kind of world. Um, and so anyway, so going back to the, going back to the being in the, the, the sex toy store in the Gold Coast, um, I just thought, well, there is no better products. Maybe that's a really interesting area to go into because I was getting towards the end of my 20s and, Blacksmithing and uh, welding and stuff is a very physical, uh, very, very, very physical, quite dirty um, uh, activity, um, right. profession. And I thought, I can't do this forever. Like, maybe I've got 10 years left in me and then I'll be 40 um, and then then I'll have to change career and I'll probably be crippled by then. So because of um, uh, the, the, the physicality of it. Um, and so um, I thought... Um, that it might be an idea to change profession early. Um, and so I thought I'm going to – my choices at that stage were do you go off to business school, um, learn business, and then hire a bunch of people to design things for you, or do you go to design school, learn how to do product design and design your own stuff? And I think uh, probably if I wanted to make more money, I probably should have gone, gone to do business. Um, probably, yeah. Because I was a maker. I just wanted to know how things were made and I just wasn't prepared to kind of, you know, let somebody else dictate that for me. Um, and I, look, I'm not, I'm not, certainly not unhappy where I've ended up because because I've ended up in design research, I've ended up in a very kind of quite unique um, space um, that is really, really needed that I feel like um, that I've ended up being able to do something that has a lot of meaning in life um, and has the capacity to kind of, move things forward a little bit and break down some of these taboos. Um, so that, that's that's how I that's how I ended up there. I, I went off to, to design school to design sectors and I didn't tell them that when they let me in. I waited till fourth, I waited till fourth year to tell them that. And they were like, what's gonna be your first project? And I was like, well, I'd like to well, create a sex toy company. Be... <laughs> I also like that specifically you kind of got into this field so you could you could you could fuck your partners better. I, I like that. Well, probably, yeah. I, <laughs> I, yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, and I did create, I did create probably 
the best dildo in the world, which was a porcelain, they're porcelain dildos. Um, so one of them. I mean, they have been have been um, reviews that they are. So that's that's a really nice compliment. Wow. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, but I think I think um, look in the end. I mean, my idea was never to go into academia. I started teaching. I actually started teaching uh, sustainable design because as I went through uni, that that was becoming a big thing, um, and we weren't getting taught anything about it, and it was completely obvious. What was going on with climate change and uh, waste? We've got all these issues that are starting to build, and design is right smack bang in the middle of it all. Yeah. Um, and so, what was that? What were our obligations as designers, and also what could we do that? Because designers are problem solvers. So, what could we do that um, could enable change and and better ways of 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 manufacturing and all sorts of stuff? Um, and so, I really got into that as well. And so as I was leaving, so what, what you're saying, is, what you're saying is you really wanted to create a sustainable dildo? No, no I, well, I did when, when I did create, because, um, you know, you've got to walk and walk if you're going to talk and talk. But when I did create my sex toy company, I did follow um, uh, uh, what's called D4E or Design for Environment principles. I did and try and create um, what I thought was um, the best option. Yeah. Um, I went for a strategy of durability, which is why um, I um, – well, look, there's a few reasons why you'd use uh, porcelain or ceramic to create a dildo. Um, and one is one is the, the durability and the strength, um, and then when you apply things like lube or the body's natural lubrication to it, you get this amazing kind of slippage. So the, the product is hard but slippery. It's really beautiful. And really beautiful to use, but um, but you also have this incredible with ceramics. You have this sort of incredible aesthetic um, uh, options to it. I mean, ceramics is just one of these amazing fields uh, which spans the history of humanity, and it would have been one of the first areas that people would have got into way back when they were we were half monkeys and we we're in the you know um, hanging out the tundra and stuff. People would have probably just accidentally started creating mud pots and things and throwing them in the fire um so and there are points where ceramic is the it's it became the the most te technologically advanced products on on the planet so in if you look at the chinese dynasties 10th 11th centuries you know um ming and Qing dynasties and stuff those things were the most technologically advanced objects um and then these days you know we can't go, well, we can go into space, but we can't return from space unless we have ceramic on the outside um, of a capsule or um, the old uh, space shuttles. Right. Um, and right. so it's this, it's this incredible material. I, I, just love, I just love things, which uh, stories which span the history of humanity. I think it connects us all in this sort of greater, greater scheme. But there's very, very functional reasons why you use ceramic. But I went for an option, uh, an option of durability, um and uh and then you know around that you can do things to make your company more greener the way you package things um what kind of electricity do you use all of this sort of stuff but i'm not microsoft i'm not i'm not apple i'm not i'm not creating i'm not a car company i'm not creating billions and billions of products 
Um, those are the companies that really need to be lifting their game on sustainability. Um, us little producers, we worry so much, but really, you know, um, we're, we're not even a, you know, we're not even a, uh, as I say, we're not even an electron on an atom on a grain of sand on an 80-mile beach, really, in terms of what we, what the kind of output, and, and we stress about it. So um, unless you go work for a really big company, uh, and some of them are good and some of them need to lift their game. Totally. Uh, so, no, I didn't market it as, as such a sustainable product because I don't think you necessarily have to. I think all products should become more sustainable. Um, but but we exist within systems. So so depending on what your, your waste systems are in wherever you're living or wherever you're sending the product to, um, uh, you're, you're kind of beholden to that too. So you can make the best product in the world and somebody can misuse it in some way or something like that. Yeah. So, um, I want um, accounting for what people do. I want to do a shift gears just a little bit. And I wanted yep. to ask you, do you, did you have any experience with disabled people before connecting with us at Deliciously Disabled and working with Heather and I? Did you have any, um, what was your experience with the disabled community before then? Uh, very little. So, so, um, uh, so like I say, uh, Alvira came to uh, see me and say that she was really interested in this area. And we went off to a sex and disability conference um, um, in Melbourne uh, one year and we had a young girl come up to us um, who had um, cerebral palsy and she said, can you help me? Um, you know, I'm kind of stuck in my wheelchair and I can't, I can't masturbate on my own. Um, because of because of my hand and arm movements, and I was horrified. I was just like, "What?" You know, I just I just think being able to masturbate is a human right, and um, um, and so that got me really thinking. And I said, "Yes, um, let me go away and think about it." And then um, then when you guys contacted us um, and we were thinking about case studies, we we um, that was when I thought about that young woman, and she became somebody that we went and asked um, to do the case study um uh with us and and then in the end um a friend of hers actually became the young woman that that um uh that agreed to do the to, to be the case study participant of which that that is going on at the moment so um that, that is case study um um the project's going on um so that was that was the limited was basically going to that conference and talking to people at that conference Wow. That was an amazing wow. conference. That was, that was a really great conference. People just being able to express their problems and issues. When you went to that conference, the you know the full range of issues comes up because it's not just the products themselves, or it, it, it it's also the policy. And again, it's these attitudes. It's these social attitudes to people with disabilities. There's a infantil infantilization of your sexual practice as though you don't have a sexual practice and, and also that you don't have a right to a sexual practice. Yeah, yeah. And which I'm sure you're, you know, you might want to talk about in this interview as well. But, and I'm sure you've talked about it before in other, in other um, forums and stuff because it's really, to me, it's, that's really heartbreaking. Um, it really is how it's 2020 now basically and we're still still treating disabled people as they children, as yeah. children that who are not grown and who cannot make decisions and one of the things yeah. that i always say to counter that is you know what 
disabled people can make really shady decisions. They're allowed to take risks. They're allowed yeah. to be to be reckless. They're allowed to fuck up. They're allowed. It's okay. Yeah. And if they do, they'll be all right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, completely. Um, yeah, look, and across the full spectrum of people with disabilities, because um, Alvara, she goes out and consults and, um, you know, um, she's got um, young women with intellectual disabilities. She's got young men who have severe autism. And sometimes she'll, she'll just be like, oh, my God, I just went to see this young, young boy. She said, oh, God, all he just really needs is just to be given a place to just go and have a wank whenever he wants it because yeah. he, he's just got this frustration and, and she said it's really difficult to talk to this particular family. They don't want to address it. So the thing is that the family plays a really big role in in um, whether whether this kind of stuff is normalised or discussed. Yeah. Um, and um, she can see that these, these because, you know, um, like, particularly with the autism spectrum and then the severe autism spectrum and then the intellectual disabilities, that becomes um, really problematic because there's communication issues. But there's ways of being able to um, give people safe places, safe spaces, the right language, you know, teaching them um, and particularly also protecting them because it's not just about you know, it's about protecting them. If somebody's touching them, the wrong yeah. person's touching them, whatever. But not to just get freaked out. I mean, we had this um, Royal Commission in Australia, which was very much needed um, around the institutionalisation, um, in the institutions, uh, particularly the churches and the orphanages across the 20th century, um, of um, Basically, uh, you know, the abuse, the sexual abuse and abuse of young people in the care of these institutions. And it's been absolutely horrendous. Um, and it was so needed because the, the particularly the, the church hierarchies needed to be exposed for the people that were doing the wrong thing and then their lack of stopping it. And that and, and obviously at the moment... Um, our, one of our archbishops uh, has gone to prison. Um, Good. And, uh, and and it's been happening all over the world, you know, Ireland, America, um, and it's so needed to be exposed um, to start some healing um, in and and to stop to stop it ever happening again. Um, but what the what it also sets up then is is moral panics. So there already are a bunch of moral panics around around uh, children and sexuality, but then also um, so people seen as vulnerable, um, you know, there becomes a the, the moral panics around that become stronger. It's almost um, like it's almost less about vulnerability in my view and more about liability. It it, it it's starting <laughs> it's starting to shift from a vulnerability yeah. thing to like if I do this with you, then I'll be liable if you say something. So it, it doesn't feel like a protectionism thing anymore in my view a lot of the time it's like i am scared about what you'll do if somebody yeah. if somebody catches me or perceives this the wrong way so yeah. I, so i'm not gonna let you do this and so that's what i was saying i think disabled people are allowed to take risks and are allowed to be mm. reckless because if like if i take a risk as a 35 year old disabled man and you help me do that risk 
I'm not going to sue you. Like, it just, it feels like it's shifting from I'm protecting you over to I don't want to get in trouble. I don't, I don't want to get sued. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, so I think one of the, um, and if we can try and um, grow this particular, um, uh, well, th this particular project, which has your component to it, but, you know, next year I'm going to try and see if I can, grow the whole topic into to sort of a multi-partner project and look at things like policy and care as part of that because it's almost like you need a um, some sort of certificate that carers can do um, that um, means that when you hire somebody, you know you can have a conversation about sex toys or you know that that person's willing to clean your sex toy or, you know, that... Um, what you know where you might be able to have a discussion with your carer about how far they're willing to go to help you yeah um and then if somebody comes along and they don't have that certificate or they don't want to do that certificate then you know not to hire them yeah um and you go well okay i mean because there are a bunch of people out there that have issues but i'm constantly gobsmacked that you know carers help you guys with the most intimate part cleaning the most intimate parts of your bodies um, your ablutions and all of that sort of stuff. And then, you know, one of the stories was, well, you know, one night I dropped my vibrator and, you know, the carer came in in the morning and wouldn't pick it up and was completely freaked out. And I'm going, well, that's just crazy. Like, they're going to take you off and shower you and see all your bits. And probably <laughs> wipe your ass. So why yeah, wipe they... your ass. And then couldn't even pick up, couldn't even pick up a sex toy off, off the ground. So there's something... There's just the psychological reaction people have, the idea that somebody is getting off, you know, um, that, that that carer had an issue with that person um, being a sexual being or getting off. Um, I, I, think, I think, again, it goes into liability because if they're there and you and the disabled person wants to, you know, get off with them in the house, not in the room, but maybe like in the house or, or in the room where they need them to, like there's this whole idea of like, oh no, if I'm involved, then it's gonna be me abusing the person. Like we're so afraid to yes. consider that disabled adults who have the, the, the capacity to consent can say, I need you here for this. Can you assist me? Like, yeah. And if I'm saying that, then then there's consent, and I'm not like we're not. I'm not. You're not going to abuse me if you help me with this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. I mean, yeah. Look, and in like in old in old people's homes now, <clears throat> in the really progressive ones, because <clears throat> my mum went into a into aged care facility um, a couple of years ago, and a year ago she um she got herself a boyfriend. And they've been canoodling in his room and stuff. And um, there's a kind of a, the staff know and they don't go in. I think they hang something on the door. And then they know to give them some privacy because you're not allowed to lock your room in those facilities. So there there can be this worked out. Um, and, and that's going to be one of the biggest issues coming through um, of baby boomers going into and then Gen X going into aged care facilities. Um you know, what if you want to jump into bed in the afternoon and get your vibrator out, you know, <laughs> and and have a and have a, an afternoon naughty nap. Um, and, yeah, somebody barges in. It's like, tea time. You want a cup of tea? You know, and somebody barges into your room. Yeah. So yeah. there's got to be, and um, you know, there, there's got to be privacy is one of the issues that is, that is going to be worked up. Yes, consent and how much people can help you and all of this sort of stuff. So, um, 
yeah, and I think I think that can be looked at from a policy and a ser- service design um, area as well. Um, oh, definitely. Oh. And I think I think disabled people can lead the like should be leading the charge on those policies and helping these service providers come up with policies that give yes disabled people and and elderly people the right to have a not enough in the afternoon if they want to, yes. um, and and sip a whole different kind of tea. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, in Canada, you can now. You can sip. You can sip a very different kind of tea um, that you can't <laughs> in Australia yet. <laughs> so, and that kind of leads me into, into that leads me into my next question. In North America, yes. we have a really taboo view of sex and disability. Really taboo. It's still, and we kind of we kind of touch on this previously in the last question. But do you think there's the Australian view on sex and disability from your perspective is any different? Or do you think that we're all of us still kind of working in this really archaic view of sexuality and disability? I, I think it's probably fairly similar. From talking to Alvira um, and and then the girls that I've gone out to talk to, um, to for the case studies and stuff um, and asking them about their experiences and stuff. Um, and really it's about them just finding the right carer who is really willing to, to kind of be open about it, tends to be a more younger person. Um, uh, yeah, and then listening to their stories. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think, I mean, we, we have the same, we have that same Western Victorian history, Canada, Australia, North America. Yeah. Um, and um, the, from what I could see um, from the research that we did, that places like Germany are more progressive um, in that sort of stuff. Um, Germans seem pretty open-minded about about um, sex and sexuality and pretty no-fussed about it. Wow, um, I wouldn't have assumed that Germany was leading the charge there. No. Uh, yeah, no. Um, Germans, no, Germans are really, really, uh, I know you think of Germans as being really uptight. They're not. Um, they're uptight about do they make something really, really well. Um, uh, but um, they're not. They're not about sexuality at all. So, and they just kind of see. They're pretty. They're pretty matter of fact about it. But um, but again, it comes. It also comes down to money. So I mean, um, why I think you know, going back to that idea that you're talking about about consent um, and liability, um, which is why I think um, sex sex workers. Um, work really well within, uh, you know, trying to, to um, help people with disabilities have some sort of sexual purpose. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I said it before on the show and I'll say it again. And I'm a hu- and all the listeners know that I use sex workers and yeah. the, it's, it's, uh, it's such an, a needed service. Yeah. And I really wish that governments would fund it. Subsidize I, it. It, yeah. it yeah. needs to be because, because yeah. I've been using sex workers now for two and a half years, I have more confidence, I'm more, you know, it, it does so much more than just get you off. It makes you feel connected to your disabled body in a way that I can't really articulate. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, and that would be something, um, so in Australia we have uh, the, the NDIS, uh, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, yeah. and that's been set up um, to give people choices um they haven't really quite got it right yet but they're they're going back and they're having another they're constantly working on it but there is this really gray area around what you can procure 
Um, and I think that needs to be opened up. Um, I, I think, but on, on the flip side of that, workers have, have issues in society of being looked down upon. And I mean, I, I don't, um, you know, I see sex work as just another form of work um, and quite an amazing form of work. Um, you know, I've had friends who've been sex workers and um, they can, we, we look down upon it, but, you know, they can, they're, sometimes they're just the most caringest people. Yeah. Um, the the guys in Australia who who from Sydney, I'm trying. I think they're called Red Door. Um, they're amazing. You know, they're really amazing. Which their whole business model is set uh, set up to go out and and um, facilitate um, our experiences with people with disabilities um, in in the male male homosexual space. And um, they are fantastic. The guy that runs that, he's a bloody angel. I so, would I would absolutely love to talk to him if you know him. Yeah, I'll find I'll find the contact details for you. It's not like they're they're unknown or underground. He go he goes around talking about this stuff um, at conferences all the time. I've I've heard him talk a couple of times. I would um, absolutely love to have him on the show. That would be so cool. Yeah, look, and and you might be able to to get some idea of of then where things sit between between the two countries. I would say Canada and Australia to me are very very similar. Um, uh, countries and um, with very similar, obviously very similar democratic systems and probably similar healthcare systems. Um, uh, you're a little bit more progressive on the medical marijuana and the marijuana front. Um, we're a little bit more conservative and backward here on that. There's still, again, a lot of moral panics and fears ar around that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, but yeah, and I'd say, I'd say we're pretty similar in, t in terms of our attitudes and stuff. Which means that you know, if you can get something, if you can change something, you can get a different model happening. Then um, these days, with our ability to go to conferences and um, you know um, access the internet and listen to podcasts and and um, have professional networks and all of this sort of stuff, that very quickly a model in one part of the world can be taken up in in another part of the world that's quite similar. So if something did happen, you might be able to to progress that. Um, uh, yeah, my feeling is that, that the attitudes are quite similar, um, but I feel like we're kind of, if we do keep, if we do keep pushing it and we do keep, and you know, um, I say we, but I mean people with disabilities and then people around them that support them, um, if we do keep pushing this idea that you are sexual beings and you have the right to have these experiences, um, I think we just need to keep pushing that message, um, uh, and we'll just it, slowly by slowly by slowly. I think we'll we'll keep. I don't see. I don't see uh, our particular societies, Canada and Australia, becoming less progressive. Um, um, well, I mean, the I mean the what way do you think? The, the ways can the way Canada's political system is going right now. I don't know. Uh, we just have we have a guy in our province of Ontario right now who is kind of we've dubbed him as Trump North. Right. And he's, right. He's a little bit terrifying. So. Right. I hope not, but I did, like the way it's going right now in North America. Mm, I want to I want to agree with you, but I'm scared as a as well, a yeah. as a marginalized person. I'm a little bit worried about that. 
Yeah, look, I think America has a whole other overlay of Christianity. You know, so many more people in America call themselves Christians um, than than uh, Canada or Australia. Australians are funny. Like, we just had the same-sex debate um, a couple of years ago. That's right. And that was overwhelmingly in favour. It was a horrible debate, but in the end, people overwhelmingly and young people got out in record numbers you know, and voted and um, overwhelmingly it was like, you know, this, come on, this just doesn't matter anymore. And I've noticed at university um, um, we have a bunch of kids who are in, who are in our honours year. It's a very small bunch. Um, but n- nonetheless, they're transitioning while they're at university. And I find that quite astounding. That's never happened before. So... Um, the whole trans space has become much more um, acceptable um, and um, that these kids feel that it's okay to, to, to kind of, you know, oh, I'm going to finish uni and scuttle away and then go off and transition and come back a different person. Yeah. They're quite yeah. open about it and, and their being and their, their, their sexuality is, is quite fluid. You know, they're not, they're not going, okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bloke and then I'm going to take on this kind of very traditional sort of stereotype of a female. Yeah. They're actually really androgynous. No, I, and that's, what, that's one of the things I love about the trans community and how it can inform, I think, the disabled space too, of like, you can be whatever the fuck you want. You're like, you're, or not even what, what you want, but what you are is fine. Like, it, so being a trans person can help a disabled person realize that if you are not a wheelchair user, you can still identify as being disabled. You know what I mean? There's so many, there's so many different variations on what these identities can mean and what i love about the trans community from what i see is that they are start and the non-binary community they're starting to say i don't want to fall into these traditional roles i want to just be whatever yeah. it is yeah yeah exactly um there is and 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 if you want to but if you want to you know if you're a female and you want to trans to a man and you want to take on that that sort of all those affectations around masculinity that's fine too. Go yeah. nuts. Yeah, you know, exactly. um, I think I think people are just becoming a bit a bit non a bit nonplussed about it, which is great, and it's and that's great to see, um, which is fantastic. So what what I mean by we're not going backwards in terms of social progression, I think there's big issues in countries like Canada and Australia around issues around climate change, um, because our 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 economies are so much um, run on fossil fuels and the exploitation of fossil fuels. And so there's a lot of um, uh, wrangling between big business and the government or parts of big business um, and the government around that. And that there seems to be a very anti-progressive, anti-science stance in that way. But these issues around how people should live their lives and what sexuality they should be um, and that we should be a bit more relaxed and free and open about things like um, sexuality or pot smoking or that sort of stuff. I think that's that's only going in in one particular direction, and I think the same sex debate really showed that. If you, I mean, look, Ireland had a had a referendum on same sex, and they won. I mean, if Ireland, if Ireland can can you know, majority of people in Ireland, um, highly Catholic country, can come out in that in that um, instance, then because I think people live these things on a day to day. They have gay friends gay relatives, you know. So, and now in the media we have 
gay role models and you know i just think being gay these days is pretty non-plus um mind you i did just jump on a plane um and go up to queensland to visit my mum which is probably um like uh, ontario you're going to the sticks a bit and i did get a few looks i've got very short hair um did feel like being back in high school again people staring at you but um oh, no. i was like oh it's so, like so going back to the 1980s a couple of the mining booths on the plane were a bit like oh what the hell is that is that a dude or is that a chick? You know, I was like, oh, it's like going back to the eighties. Um, but it was fun. It was I fun. I did want to just shift gears a little bit. I, I yes. love I love all your stories. They're so good. Most of this episode is me sitting here just listening to you talk. Um, but I do want to ask you when you when so people are when we tell people what we're doing with this project, everybody yes. their eyes explode. They get really excited. They're like, wow, that's really great. So I want to ask you as the lead kind of design person on this. Can yeah. you talk us through some of the logistical challenges of as a researcher on a project like this? Like what went into making this happen and, and how do you how when you when this is brought to you, how did you start to consider tackling it? Um because this was the first first time I've looked at a at a people with disability project um where I had to look at it very closely. Um, you know, we produced a report for you guys, um, was the first thing we did. What was really interesting was Avira went in and looked at all the occupational therapy literature. Uh, you do a, what, you know, you do a, an academic li literature search and, you know, what, what oh, we found out of that those. is, yeah, there's very little produced and it's, they're not, they're not that helpful. So um, because also there's that sort of there's a quasi-scientific kind of method to it, so they want to give you stats and whatever, but again, as a designer, you're like, yeah, but what does that mean? So a lot about being a designer is about how you interpret other information. So you're, you're coming to a problem which is quite complex. It's both a technological problem, um, but it's also a people-centered problem, and then you're a person, but then you're surrounded by other people that you interact with. So there's a there's a you know, a kind of a, um, a a service or I wouldn't, you know, I mean, you have your family, but then you have your carers, um, you have your sex workers. So there's there's a whole bunch of other people that are interacting with you too. Um, then there's us and our biases and how, and how you know, can we sort of um, negate those, um, which all researchers have to think about. But that, what was interesting about, um, that I found about doing that report was that the academic literature I found pretty not very helpful to the design team. But when we started going through what we call as the grey literature, which is the anecdotal stuff, the stuff that people put up on the internet yeah. or, your, or your story, like we asked for your story. Um, and there is lots, there's lots and lots of stuff up there on the internet now of people telling their stories, talking about what it's like, um socially what it's like and um and then the, the range of people's disabilities and that um that kind of gray literature search was super helpful um because as designers you're you're not just looking for functional ergonomic uh, issues you're looking for emotional psychological issues because they can be as problematic um as as something not not functioning properly as well definitely yeah um, um also it helps you gain empathy as as a designer um and also gave us a little bit of a look at what was happening in different parts of the world 
who was doing what, what services were available, all of that sort of stuff. And then you start to look at a little bit of the technology. So you kind of have to lay the groundwork with new projects. Um, and what we found by doing that, which we all agreed on when we had our first, um, when we had our report presentation to you guys, was that in the market, you know, like if you, if you're in a wheelchair but you can still use your arms and hands really, really well, then you can have a semblance of a sex life. So it's when, so um, uh, you can get yourself into positions or you can get your partner into positions, you can touch yourself. And, you know, and this is with you, you were for years and years and years able to masturbate yourself till you couldn't. Yeah. And then it really yeah. became a problem. So what we we all agreed was the gap in the market was around that arm, hand, dexterity, flexibility, movement, um, and how we could tackle that. And then the the issue that was ongoing because, you know, we obviously we haven't finished this report and this is going to be ongoing for, for you and Heather um, as you move towards trying to develop some things into products and a company and all of this sort of stuff. Right. Is that each person with the disability is individual, and so the way that we're tackling the case studies at the moment is around that individual person. Now, in a when, when you're looking at a, a across a population of people, um, as a as a designer and engineer, you can you can take specific examples and say, well, that would be extrapolated out to a certain percentage of the population. So if we make that type of product. Pretty much X amount of people are going to be able to to use it in this way. I think it's a very different scenario with people with disabilities. Um, you're all very, very different. Even between like we started off looking at one case study participant for the females and we went and interviewed her and kind of mapped out what her issues were like physically and emotionally and then she became unavailable to do the project. And so we started with a certain set of circumstances and then we moved to uh, another female participant and we went and mapped out her set of circumstances and she had a very different set of circumstances. Um, and so we're designing to her set of circumstances. Yeah, and between and I, those two, two women, you'd end up with quite two, probably quite two different products. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think that makes it really, that's one of the things that I think we will run into as we try to grow this brand is, yeah. Every single disability is so somebody with CP who is who has who has CP and is in a wheelchair can be completely different from yeah. somebody who's also has CP and is in a wheelchair. Like so yeah. there's it's so Hardly. Yeah. It's so hard to find to 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 find a a common thread within that which is part of the thing that I love about disability and one of the things when we're looking to design this product is like how the fuck do we do this how do we how so yeah that's it's true and it and and that comes up in the uh the relationship between the OT on the project and the design team and the design team is you know we've got a, a mechanical engineer who's studying biomed we've got a product design engineer and myself who's who's an industrial designer and then we've got the OT and uh, Alvira will look at things completely differently to the way that we will look at things and we'll kind of over the, the table we'll sort of have this back and forth um, and she will take a much more and also she's just like, well, you know, that person would just do their exercises or something like that. 
And it's just like, well, yeah, but they're not going to or they didn't or whatever. So that's that's off the table or whatever. So I think um, it, it also it's our job as designers to take to take what she's saying into consideration. But we also have to we're also trying to find this space where we can get something out there that may suit some people. If you, we know it's not going to suit everybody. Yeah. And the products that we put out there, but if they're successful and you can make some money out of them, then you can make other products that will help different types of people. Dr. Glover, when you picture this toy that we're talking about, when you picture like the end design, and I know I know we're we're not even close to that yet, but when you, if you were to picture this toy, what are you what are you picturing? Well, it's not even a toy, really. What we're helping you with is a, is is a kind of an assisted device that's going to be more like a handle that can take a toy. So, and we're trying to work through a process of whether we try and create something which is more universal, so you can put whatever toy that you want in there, or do we then go and work with a specific sex toy company that might be open to it, and we. We work with their type of products and and maybe convince them if they don't have Bluetooth-enabled stuff or something like that. I mean, you've got a great sex toy company in, in – well, you've got a couple in Canada. Um, uh, you've got WeVibe in Canada. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's quite possible that – I mean, there's a few that we're looking at. Um, Fun Factory have been helping us at the moment with product, which is great. They've given us heaps of product to try. Um, and – um, these are the more progressive end of the sex toy industry and they could very well be open to, to um, working with a project like this, um, which what, what you probably don't want to be doing is trying to create a vibrator from scratch at this particular point because it's a lot of money to do that. Um, so you probably want to be either designing something which you can universally attach to a whole bunch of different things so people have the option around because everybody's really again quite different around what kind kinds of <clears throat> vibration they like and look it's pretty common for women um, who use sex toys to use vibrators it's not so common for guys and so what we've been trying with you is we've we've been sending you a whole bunch of different stuff and trying uh, getting you to try uh, products on yourself, different parts of your body, um, and to see what you really like. Um, uh, and some of them, you know, some of them have been way more successful than others. And if we could work with that, I think it helps you later down the track if you do want to design your own specific types of vibrators um, because you're starting to build material. Um, but, uh, I mean, in its most basic, what we're talking about is, is an extension um, that somebody who lacks hand dexterity or arm movement dexterity can be able to reach their bits. Yeah. Um, and even in terms of the way that you lie and you try to reach your bits in the way that the female case participant likes to lie and the way that she likes to reach her bits is quite different. So even between male and female, it's quite it's quite different. I think the thing is to try and um, uh, rationally and reasonably work out what's the best way forward and get something out there um, 
that you can then get people using, get more feedback, um, make some money out of and, and grow grow um, a company to develop more products. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's, you know, that, that'll, that's eventually our plan. It's a plan to grow a brand around, you know, disability driven design, which is, which I'm really excited about. Um, one of the last things I want to ask you, so if you were to think like 10, like 10, 20, 30 years on the line, what do you think as a, as a, as a innovator in this field, what do you think the future of sex toy design and disability might look like? Ah, oh, that's a really hard one. Um, because um, it's hard to know where technology is going to go. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, um, things like exoskeletons are going to be developed much more, um, which will help um, people be able to use parts of their bodies that they can't they can't use or, or augment you know, um, muscles that are wasting or, or nerves that are wasting or that sort of stuff. Um, so augmentation might help just people with disabilities in general. Like if you could put on, say, imagine if you could put on, um, pull up over your arm, over your elbow and your forearm, you know, some sort of, um, um, you know, compression fab fabric that then enabled your um your arms or your your forearms to work like they used to, um, that would essentially resolve a lot of your issues around around you being able to try and masturbate. That's right. Um, but that would also help you in a in a in a in a in a day to day kind of um, way. You know, you'd be able to do a whole bunch of other stuff as well. So, I think you may. So where. So these advances where they're trying to help people just in general um, um, may help that as well. Um, I think voice activation might come in handy. Um, I think so at the moment, um, I'm trying to think of the kind of the kind of technologies that we're looking at at the moment are reasonably low cost, obviously. Um, 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 and where those might go um, around switches and things like that. Again, where where you guys are at, where the two case study participants are at, I mean, um, you're potentially not even using some of the more sensitive switches. I don't know, do you use a um, – what kind of switching technology do you use, Andrew? I, I don't, can't remember. I don't even use it. You don't use any? Yeah. No. Yeah. And I don't think either does the other female case study participant. But there's going to be people out there that are going to be um, um, uh, way more, if I can use the term, disabled that would need, like, um, puff switches and suck switches and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. I think, I think and depending on where you go, whether you, whether you work with an existing company and then start working with, Getting them to, if they don't have Bluetooth technology um, inside their their products, to, to put it in there. So then that enables you to put switches outside, outside, you know, like on the edge of the bed or somewhere else. Um, so I think that that kind of um, in, uh, connectivity, um, kind of technologies between product and switch or or, or other product, I think is going to be quite important. 
Um, so you think that overall, like rather than trying to look at just the sex toy design industry and disability, what we should be looking at in the future is making products that can be used interchangeably around sexuality and, and day-to-day life for disabled people. So, yeah. Oh, well, I think the same kind of technologies that, that are being developed because what, what we're doing is that we're looking, I mean, we're looking specifically at your specific case studies from a, from a physicality perspective and a psychological perspective, but we're not using technologies, uh, well, we don't have the money to create technologies that don't exist. We're, we're looking at the kind of pretty normal technologies that get used um, with people with disabilities. Um, so kind of just repurposing, you think that we should be in the next 20, 30 years really repurposing the idea of like, or expanding the idea of like OT and PT out to include sexuality and include... Yes, and yes. All, all that stuff should just be including sex as opposed to trying to create a whole new field. Yeah, I think, um, I, I think, I think one, if you could get the sex toy industry to accept like a lot of other industries that there is an enormous market out there with people with disabilities and to maybe um, within their own teams and look you've got to remember it that's an industry that doesn't innovate uh, doesn't really innovate so it might be a case of getting some of these companies to work with research groups like ourselves um, to augment their existing products um, and if they're successful, then they might be likely to put, put more uh, into that process. But um, uh, so I think part of it is trying to just grow this acceptance that people with disabilities have sexual needs like everybody else, have, we also have sexual we also have buying power. We also have... Oh, huge. You know, huge. like, what, just to your, to your last point, what you were saying, like, we are an untapped market. I'll put money down mm. if I can use a toy that's going to make me get off. For sure, I will. Yeah. I'll save up. Yeah. My, I'll save up my my um, my supplement dollars to to make sure that it, this month I can buy a sex toy. For sure, I would if I knew I could use the toy. For sure. Yeah, and the thing is that people don't haven't um um there's no there, there's very it's again there's there's no um. What people might be doing it on their own in their own homes with carers, and so there's probably if you could somehow get this information back to researchers to analyze, um, uh, there's probably a lot of kind of ad hoc stuff being going on. So, for instance, if you when you start looking around um, on people with disability sites, um, you know there's some amazing ones. I, I found this fantastic one from North America. This guy. He was all about hunting and fishing. So this dude was like, he was in, he, he um, spinal cord injury, he was in a wheelchair. I don't think he had great, um, uh, I think he had very little use of his arms and hands. And he was not prepared to not um, give up his hunting and his fishing. And he had the most, you know, he had rigged up the craziest stuff. And I was looking through it, just going, could we use that? Could we use that? You know. So there's a lot of stuff out there where people are like, this is how I've adapted my life. And I'm sure you have adaptations to things that you've come up with. Definitely. Um, and if that if that guy is about, well, how do I hold a fishing rod? You know, well, we're like, how do you hold a sex toy? So there's a lot of commonality um, 
you know, it's just about how do you hold something? How do you get it in the right spot? You know? Um, uh, yeah. So um, I, initially I think the thing is to start in the lowest. I always aim for the lowest tech option first because it's going to be cheaper for the client also yeah. to produce. And then if the company can, uh, has has eventually more money, then you can go for, for higher tech options. Um, uh, there's a lot of stuff. So in, in technology, you know, the world is going towards robotics um, and they're looking at And then, I mean, look, you, you've also, you've got these questions. A lot of the time researchers will do things because they can, you know. Somebody's an expert in Metronics or robotics and so they're going to focus their issues on how they can use, focus their research on how they can do that. Sometimes research questions, which is why I like design as an area, because we look at a problem and then we decide what level of technology, um, what, what that human technology interaction is. Right. Rather than just going, okay, I'm a robotics engineer. I'm really interested in, you know, um, disability. And um, so... The way to help people masturbate is to build a robot to help people masturbate, which is an extreme, extreme example. But, you know, it's potentially possible. Um, and so they've been looking at, particularly with um, aged care, you know, particularly in Japan, they've been looking at how they can, because uh, there's an ageing population, um, how they can look after elderly people with robotics. Um, I Listen, as a disabled person who will hopefully become elderly... I really want that. I want an AI person or a robot. I would love that because I can be mad at the robot. The robot's not going to get mad at me. The robot's not going to refuse me care. The robot's not going not to tell me to fuck off because it's a robot. That, you know, I really hope that in the future that's what – that would be great. So, so just to jump on that, yes, I think – and if we can get me a sexy robot that looks like – John Stamos to get me off. I am <laughs> totally there for that. <laughs> well, look, this is where the sex toy industry might be able to help you because one part of the <laughs> sex toy industry will go is going towards robotics and metronics. So that whole area, which is the the, the life size doll area, they are slowly, slowly, slowly um, trying to develop them uh, <clears throat> into things that are more realistic. I. In our lifetime, Andrew, um, will that happen? I'm not so sure. Probably they not. might be able. To, look, you might be able to get bits of that. Like, I'm not sure they will develop you something that that might be able to look like um, <laughs> your favourite movie star. Um, uh, that's super, super realistic. Like the idea that that um, we'll have these these. Um, um, synthetic or, you know, um, replicant machines walking around that are, um, that you I cannot love that you said, I love so much that you said replicant because that's what was I was thinking in my head. And then you said yeah. it and I was like, yes, we're on the same page. Yeah, well, these are, these are the sci-fi terms that get, that get used, you know, um, synthetics, replicants. And, um, uh, but the idea that you will not be able to tell a replicant from a, from a, from a human being um, in the next, say, 30 or 40 years. I find that hard to believe that that's going to progress that quickly. Yeah, probably not. I, I, know, I know that in, in bits, they chop the body down into bits and, and, you know, they've got the head of a robot there. 
you know, and they're doing all that that stuff with AI that they're, you know, they're they're fooling people. They're talking, they're, you know, they're talking to to AI bots and all of this sort of stuff. They're having conversations. Um, yes, that software is getting more and more sophisticated, and that's where it will really progress really really quickly. Is the software. Um, the hardware side of it is really difficult because to make stuff is quite hard and to the human body is this incredibly unique, uh, complex, complex thing. And so it's not just our complex movements. I mean, the way that the elbow moves or something like that, it's very difficult to replicate that um, uh, mechanically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so uh, obviously you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of research power being put onto this, so I have to be careful to say, oh, it's not going to happen because at the moment, just because it looks too complex. Um, because I'll sound like the guy back in the 20s who said that calculators and computers weren't going to take off. Who who, who would want a calculator? <laughs> I don't think. I think it was Texas Instruments or something. Who would? I think Texas Instruments is a famous story where they just said, oh, nobody will want computers. They won't take off. You know, I'll sound like that that person. Um, or the publisher that refused the Harry Potter books. I'll sound like that person. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, and, and, it, and it may happen. But I'm not saying that we won't, we won't have lots and lots of machines and robotic machines and AI. I think we, we definitely will. But um, can they put it all together in one single package that you can't tell the difference um, between, between a, a replicant and a, and a person? That's going to be super, super difficult. And also, uh, and it's really super, super expensive. Also, I think just to go back to what you're saying too, and I agree with you. The the expense of those would probably be like way out of any any disabled person's cost thing. But also to go back to what you're saying, the way that these, the future of sex toys needs to change also is, once our attitudes towards disability change, they they have to shift too. So. I think yes. we need to, yes. we need, I think that's why this is so exciting, the thing we're working on, because not only are we trying to build, you know, a sex toy for disabled people or something along those lines, we're trying to shift attitudes at the same time, because yeah. once those attitudes click on and the shift has been made, then the world opens up for disabled people to, to have access to their own pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, I think I look I we I mean and also we don't have to work with well you guys don't have to work with one sex toy company. You could work with a range of them and and depending on their products um you know you could have um something that suits this particular type of product, something that suits another. Um those companies that are most progressive, I mean it would be amazing branding and marketing exercise for them um if if they could get on board. Um, and, uh, you know, um, and really so show some, you know, corporate responsibility. Some of these companies, the, the biggest ones in the world who do the best jobs, they do, they do make, they do do pretty all right. Um, they're not, they're not povo companies. Um, so they should be doing a little bit more, uh, corporate responsibility stuff. And I think this is an area, it's very difficult to get them um to kind of think that it's some sort of priority um and, and again that is kind of attitudes around the way that sex toys are marketed is that we're all young people yeah you know yeah. um 
we're not old, we're not, we're not ugly, we're not disabled, you know, and yet sex toys become more important as you get older. Um, because you're not because, as lubricated as you were before. No, and even, you know, like um, your, but particularly for women, you know, um, premenopausal, um, a, a lot of women, the, the, the sensitivity of their clitoris changes. So guys have erectile issues. Women, the, the sensitivity of your clitoris changes and you need um, a sex toy. So, you, and you need to find the right sex toy for you. And it's just, it's a bit random. Um, I found the right sex toy for me and um, it would be really difficult to, for me in partner sex to to actually orgasm without that sex toy now. Um, and luckily, you know, in a gay relationship, it's kind of like there's no sort of stock standard approach. So people are pretty open-minded about stuff. But it just happens to be that, you know, I've tried a lot of different sex toys in my life because of my research. So it's not hard for me to find um, the one that I need for my body. So, um, but one of the, um, I think for women that's, you know, you've probably got better options there for guys with erectile issues. Um, uh, that's, it's a huge, it's a huge thing. And again, it's this sort of um, marginalization of, of companies um, that want to go into this area as though, you know, there's something, there's something, um, you know, um, the, the, taboo, the taboo nature of it. So I think technology is one thing. Technology doesn't solve all problems. Um, like you say, attitudes is really, really important. Yeah. Once those attitudes change, people then go, oh, that's a market. You know, that's a market that then we can get into. Yeah. So, um, yeah, look, I, I would, I'd be, well, we'll find out. Like, like if, if, if we come to the end of this project and, um, you know, one of the recommendations is that, you know, you work with, with companies and, and Heather goes off to investigate that. We'll find out what people's attitudes are to that. And I reckon some companies will be like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Um, and then I reckon other companies will just be like, no, we're not interested. And they won't tell you why, but they just probably might not want their brand associated um, with the idea of people with disabilities. No, no, um, no, that's probably very true. That's because disability we haven't found a way in marketing to make disability less about access and more about sexy. And I don't mean sexy in a way of just like sexuality. Cool. I mean, it's yeah, cool and hip. Cool yeah. and hip. And like when yeah. many disabled people are cool and hip because they're yeah. like, because of their disability. Same with the same with the, with the aging population. They're cool. They're hip. Like they, I mean, they can be, but we need to start seeing them that way. Yeah, and um, look, I mean, that's probably a, a failing of, of marketing and branding that, you know, that we have to perceive things. We, we can't sort of have this diversity. Um, but again, I think that's changing too. I think diversity is one of the, a key driver um, across society now. Um, it's slower in some areas than others, but certainly like big corporations are getting on board the idea that they need diverse staff, not in the tech industry, but in other industries. Uh, it's it's huge. They need um, a lot of diversity um, in organisations. Um, you need a diversity of thought. You need a diversity of experience. Um, uh, yeah, look, anyway, we'll find out. I think if you think with research, if you get overwhelmed 
by the enormity of a problem, um, you'll just never do anything. And I think if you um, wait for a ginormous bucket of money to fall on you, you'll never do anything. Yeah. So yeah. my approach is like, how much money have you got? What can we do? Let's give it a crack. Yeah, and that's kind, of, that's kind of how we, we've we approached this thing. We came into yeah. this with no money and like with no, like, We've crowdfunded a bunch, and we're hoping to get yeah. more. Uh, if you if you're listening and you want to crowdfund, um, deliciouslydisabled.ca/slash/donate. Thank you, thank you. Um, but you know, we we came into this with no money and a dream and an idea, and it's yeah. we're so excited to have connected with you, and I'm so excited to have spent the hour and a bit talking with you just now. Thank you so much for taking the time. Before I let you go, Dr. Glover, is there any? Do you have any final thoughts? Anything you want to say? No, I think we just have to keep moving forward a little bit by little bit. Um, and eventually, you know, something, there'll be a significant shift, you know, and I think um, a company will be ragingly successful or, um, you know, um, you'll have a big sex toy company just sort of, you know, scoop you up and want to work with you and all this sort of stuff. So I think, and even if you just keep crowdsourcing and we just keep doing projects, the more... The more that um, the more that we can do, then the more publicity you can you can generate. You know, yeah. it's going it's going to help. Um, and look, still, we don't really know what what quite what the end result of this is going to be, or exactly how. I've got some thoughts, but exactly how you what the options are for you guys moving forward. It'll be around, It'll be from easiest through to most difficult. Um, and everything in between. So, and then you'll have to make your choices on that. But um, no, I think you look. I think uh, we're probably this project is probably quite unique out there in the world of of research. Um, and I look I at would say so. I, I look at um, like every once in a while. Look, we have amazing um, assistive uh, technicals. Well, essentially, what we're doing is assistive technology. And, you know, we have amazing um, assisted technology um, uh, uh, programs within our universities um, in, in places like Melbourne and all around the world, and they have these hackathons. They had one on the news a couple of months ago. Um, and basically, you know, they get people in and then they're like, what's your problem? And somebody says, well, I can't do this. And then this whole team of young, um, you know, students, engineering and robotics and coding and design students will come in and, you know, I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there going. I mean, that's essentially what what our team is doing for you guys. But one day it would be great that somebody turns up and says, "Well, I can't masturbate. Can you help me?" <laughs> the news cameras at that particular point. But that it becomes so that it becomes normalised. You know, um, yeah. that it's not something that needs to be hidden away or not discussed or whatever. That's completely normal, um, and that we can have a hackathon. You know, maybe that's what we maybe that's what we should do um, soon, Andrew. As we we do a hackathon on this, um, see see what happens. Because be I think, well, what um, what uh, yeah, could we could we could uh, we say that maybe we can get some different groups going on around the world. And we do it all on the same day. Um, but, uh, because what our, our group is just one one group of minds. You know, it's the four people that are involved in in our in our team, um, and then and then our case studies and stuff. And I think when you when you get more, um, and this is the thing, 
you get more people thinking about a problem or you get more people thinking about the diversity of the problem or anything because it, there is a diversity of problems out there um you're going to get a diversity of solutions so it's it's what we have to build up to is that this particular topic becomes something that people want to get involved in and um do, do more with yeah. so that it doesn't just remain um you guys working with us um that we can um you know that that um, more people become interested interested it, in. yeah it needs to you know expand it needs to grow and 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 I, i'm excited that we're taking the first steps to do that together um yeah. judith dr judith glover how do we how can people get a hold of you and follow your work um i've got a website um it's called dashi um i don't know what the url is at this particular point um if you would google if you google dashi d-a-s-h-i um and dr judith glover r-m-i-t um it'll come up um uh dashi unfortunately is a major ingredient of japanese cooking um (laughs) oh it is um so it's a it's a it's a particular stock um so you'll probably uh get get lots and lots of lots dashi recipes come up i think if you together um or you just put sex toy design and dr judith glover rmit together you'll eventually i'll I'll come up um there but um yes i'm putting our projects on there at the moment. We've got a new one starting um, uh, to do with breast cancer and radiation and all that sort of stuff. So that's fantastic. Um, And I've got a new PhD student starting. So um, yeah, there's always something happening um, every year. So, um, and I have to say, I really, this has been a fantastic um, project uh, with you and Heather and our female case study participant. We can't reveal at the moment because we're still in the middle of of the project, the girls that have helped us out so far and the girls that are helping us out on the design team. Everybody is doing this from a lot of, um, probably a lot of love. Um, and uh, since we, we don't have we don't have a lot of money at this particular stage. Um, and I think you know, the girls that are on the, the, the design team, um, uh, you know, they work in consultancies and they do all sorts of, um, probably more stock standard industry work. Um, sometimes it can be very challenging and boring. And um, they they love this project because it's about giving them some meaning to put their skills to, something um, where they feel they can make a difference, which is um, uh, what I like about researching in this area, that you just think um, even just trying these projects um, is making a difference. You know, hopefully we will eventually succeed in one way shape or form and keep progressing forward um i'm so glad that we could that we could help you and the team you know find help and do find it. some meaning in life thank yeah. you Andrew. and do, do, a, do a project that makes you all feel good and we're we're so excited to be working with you and it was such a pleasure to chat this morning um yeah the morning for you nighttime for me in canada but uh it was so fun for you to kind of share with us how this project for you is as the lead the lead innovator on this project how it what it means for you and i thank you so much for your time today yeah pleasure pleasure andrew thanks dr glover we'll talk soon thanks okay bye bye all right friends that's another episode of disability after dark 
the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability. My name is, of course, Andrew Gerza, and thank you so much for listening and helping the show go. I really appreciate that you all listen and that you come back every week, and I love doing it, and I love shining a bright light on these topics, so thank you. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com, where you'll find my writings, some cool videos I've been in, and you'll see where I've been talking where I've been doing talks, and if you want to hire me to talk, you can do so there as well. If you want to follow me on the social media, you can put in all my handles on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook at TheAndrewGerza. If you want to follow the podcast specifically, you can follow us on Twitter at DisAftDarkPod, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash DisabilityAfterDark. This show is a completely independent production. I literally record the show here in my bedroom in Toronto, and that's awesome. So if you want to support this fully independent program, you can head over to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark, and you can pledge $1 a month to get the show early and get really cool perks like that, and I, I will give you a shout out on the air, and thank you for your support. It would be super awesome if you could also leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast so that this show, all about sexuality and disability, something we don't talk about enough, can get more traction and more people can hear about the show. Lastly, if you want to be a part of Disability After Dark, you can submit your suggestions, story ideas, or your minisodes to our email inbox, disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next time, right here on the program Shining a Bright Light on Sex and Disability, Disability After Dark. New episodes of Disability After Dark will be available every Thursday on your favorite podcast app. Also available to Patreon subscribers one day early on every Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Cripple Content Creations, with music by Chris Ujiuchi. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright 2019